Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about working with professionals to show them how to use the tools to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And today is going to be a little bit weird because what we're talking about is selling your business. You know, you've reached that point where for whatever reason, it's time to go to a different chapter of your life. And that can be very confusing, you know, as, as to how to go about that process, because for many people, you know, they want that business to continue. They don't want to just close the doors, whether they're real or virtual doors. They do want that to go on. Maybe they don't have a family member or, you know, team members, staff, anybody like that to continue on. And so they want to sell that business because they put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this. And, you know, it's worth something. And, and so we're going to talk about how to go about that process. So today joining us is my guest, David Barnett. So welcome, David. Oh, thanks, Deb, for having me on today. You know, this really is going to be fascinating because I think it is something that so many small business owners and entrepreneurs really don't think about, you know, that because we get so caught up in the, the business, you know, the day-to-day -day activities that we don't even think about the future of the, the what-ifs. You know, what if I want to close my doors? What if I get a, a better, a different opportunity, things like that? And then when that time comes they're totally lost, um, you know, and, and there's definitely groundwork that can be laid before that that even happens. But, you know, we want to walk people through that process as to, you know, if you've made that decision, here's the, the you know, some of the, the best ways to go about it. Yeah. You, you know, it's funny, Deb, because people often ask me, when is the right time to plan mm -hmm. uh, getting out of a business? When's the right time to plan, for example, to sell the business? And I often say that, people really should have an idea of what their strategy is going to be to get out of the business when they get into it. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. that so that they can, you know, have a direction mm -hmm. when they're when they're in their business life. Right. You know, and and for some people they really do just close. You know, especially if there's somebody like me because my business is me. But there's still clients that I would want to, you know, hopefully transfer to somebody else or, you know, all these various things. But for some people they're really is a true business with physical assets with you know things that can definitely be carried forward and and you know you're right you should start planning that right from the start it's kind of like you know when we're itty bitty babies our parents buy life insurance they're planning for that future um you know and and it's something that you know is is way down the road but it is something that you should be planning for yeah, absolutely. I, I often use the analogy of, you know, someone who is an expert maybe in fitness and mm -hmm. health. And let's say that, uh, you know, they're not happy in the workforce. They mm -hmm. want to have their own job. They're, they want to own their own business to control their own destiny. Well, if all they're thinking about is a business to produce an income for themselves, that person might open a gym mm -hmm. uh, or some kind of personal training business. And then once they're open and making money, then then that's kind of it. Right. right. And, and, and they'll run that business for a long time until they get tired of it or whatnot. But but if they said from the very beginning, I'm going to open a gym mm -hmm. and my goal is to make a gym that is going to be attractive for a national brand to mm -hmm. come and buy me. Mm -hmm. and, and you're in Atlanta. So let's use Atlanta as an example. Mm -hmm. 
And you might say, for a national company to want to buy me, they're, they're probably not going to be interested in one location. But maybe if I build up, you know, 10 locations in the greater Atlanta area, then all of a sudden I'm going to be attractive for a big national brand that would like to come into this region. Right. And so now that you have an idea of what you want to do, it's going to change the way you manage things from day to day. So once you get that first location open, because you know what your plan is, you're going to start thinking about now where's my next location going to be. Right. And, and so that's why I always tell people, start at the beginning and figure out how you're going to get out. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the thing that's so tragic is you get these people who get into a business, and you probably heard the expression a lot of the times, Deb, is that they, they work in their business, not on it. Right. And then and then all of a sudden decades go by mm-hmm. and nothing much has changed. And then they something happens to them and they need to sell. Mm-hmm. And someone like me will come along and start working with them and, and point out all of these different things that they could have done mm-hmm. to prepare their business that would have made it worth so much more money. Right. That that they never thought of or never considered. Mm-hmm. Well, and it is about having that contingency plan because things do happen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, both both good and bad. You know, maybe it's that something bad does happen, you know, and, and so your heirs, your family, you know, somebody needs to sell that business, um, you know, for, for you know, whatever reason. Maybe it's just that you got ill. Maybe it's, you know, something more serious than that. But it is something that they need to sell. So they might not have any idea what to do. And so if you have at least made some initial steps, that will help them. Maybe it's also something very positive. You know, you might have, you might win the lottery. Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Um, or, you know, more, more likely is that you would get a better opportunity, you know, something else that you would like to do. Maybe it's, you know, you started your own business and you get a good offer to go back into corporate America or, you know, work in a different area, different field or work for someone else, you know, where it is something that, that you want to, to switch to. <clears throat> so again, you don't want those blood, sweat and tears to just be for nothing. And, you know, and, and so you want to be able to sell that business. Have you ever had many clients that sold the business to get back into corporate America? I haven't, but I've, I, and, and the reason is I've known a lot of people who have closed their business and, you know, and, and that's, that has been tragically the case. Now, did they even consider selling it? Who knows? You know, it, it wasn't discussions that I've had with them, but there have been people that, um, and, and I want to mention that you're in Canada. We're down here mm-hmm. obviously in the United States. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't really think that that makes a, a big difference, but you know, a lot of times entrepreneurs and solopreneurs here in the United States, we're almost forced into it. You know, they, they were downsized or their company was bought out or their company closed, or they just thought I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and they started their own business. And then maybe a good opportunity does come along and, and they go back into corporate America. Um, you know, sometimes it was the, the situation of their business just didn't make a go of it. And so they, they were forced to go back into corporate America, but there's still assets and things that they could have potentially sold. And, you know, they may have. But, you know, it is something that is kind of tragic when you talk to them, you know, whether it's, you know, I see a post on LinkedIn or, you know, all these various things. And, and I say, you know, well, what happened to your business? And they say, well, I just shut it. I closed it. And so mm. I do think, you know, would they have had the opportunity to, in, in some way, benefit from closing those doors? You know, whether it is outright selling it or at least, you know, selling off the assets and things like that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the, it's funny because one of the workshops that I have 
is is actually called How to Get Out of My Business. I do it live, and then there's an online version as well that people can get at through my blog site. Um, and and I what I do is I help business owners see their own business through the eyes of a potential buyer, ah. and and so that they can understand what it is that a buyer is looking for because. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, there really are businesses where the best plan is not a sale. Right. The best the best plan is some sort of liquidation or mm-hmm. um, what I like to call a wind up or a wind down. And I mm-hmm. define those two things differently um, because you're right. Some businesses, you know, they don't have a lot of value to someone else. And mm-hmm. In particular, you know, you mentioned your own business. Your, your business would have a lot of personal goodwill. Mm-hmm. You know, people want to do business with Deb and. So versus a business like maybe a dry cleaner or something where people may not even know the owner. They just right. know the location, mm-hmm. the pricing, the quality and the service. And and the owner could change. And as long as those things were still delivered, the, you know, the clientele would be perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, uh, you're you're right. And, and, you know, with the I I have met quite a few, as you described, these reluctant entrepreneurs, these people mm-hmm. who. They, they lose their position in a big company through downsizing or whatnot, and they go out there and they say, I need to figure out a way to bring in enough money to support myself. Right. And, and they don't want to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny, one of my early careers, um, I was actually in advertising when I first got out of university. This was back before the internet was what it is today, and, and I was actually uh, working with a Yellow Pages publisher as a sales rep. And I learned very quickly that there were a lot of people out there running their own business, and and I almost, um, you know, I developed this 30, 30, 30, 10 rule mm-hmm. where it seemed like 30% of the people I was meeting were entrepreneurs because they couldn't find a job. So mm-hmm. they had to become an entrepreneur. They had to open a business. And there was another third that were entrepreneurs because nobody would hire them. Mm-hmm. If if you can get the difference between those two. Right. So right. these were characters and personalities that mm-hmm. that – you know, other people weren't comfortable having them having them in their organization, mm-hmm. and and then the other thirty percent were people who couldn't work for other people. Mm-hmm. So people who had you know issues with authority and whatnot. Right. And that last ten percent were the breath of fresh air. These were the the real entrepreneurs, the people mm-hmm. who who thought about an idea mm-hmm. and had a dream and created a plan mm-hmm. and built that business and. And wanted to make something great, and those mm-hmm. were the real entrepreneurs. And and you know, it, it's just funny hearing you say talk about uh, you know sort of the reluctant entrepreneurs because my I helped my ex-wife buy a business back when we were married, mm-hmm. and I asked the seller. I said, you know, what made you decide to get into this business? Because to me, business is exciting. Right. I I love business ideas, and mm-hmm. and if I meet somebody somewhere and uh, start talking with them. The, the conversation will invariably get to business because it's what excites and what interests me. Mm-hmm. And I was so surprised when she said, I never wanted to be in business. I was forced into it. Ah. And, and I said, I said, wow, that's incredible. It's because I think a generation or two ago, people were, there were more people forced into things. Mm-hmm. And today, you know, uh, and I know it varies by what part of the country you're in and everything, but mm-hmm. but it seems like if you're down on your luck and you can't make ends meet, there are these safety nets now that mm-hmm. people can fall into, right. you know, whether different social programs or, or whatnot. And it seems like it's easier now for people to not have to be forced into becoming an entrepreneur. Right. And and so it was it was an interesting 
thing for me to hear because mm-hmm. because I'd never had anyone say that to me before that I directly knew face to face. And and she explained how she had worked for a sporting goods store and this was a trophy shop, trophy and engraving business. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And and she had worked for a sporting goods store that uh, had closed down and everything was being liquidated and she had applied to over a hundred different businesses and wasn't able to find a job. And so she went to the receiver. It was a bankruptcy situation mm-hmm. and she made a deal to buy the engraving equipment. Mm. And then, and then she leaned over and she whispered to me and she said, when I came to get the equipment, I made sure no one was looking and I stole all the records. Oh, <laughs> oh. And, and, and I was like, so you took all the customer files and she's like, yeah, because mm-hmm. I knew that I was going to have to call everyone right. and let them know that I had, you know, the, the, in those days mm-hmm. with the, with the engraving machine, there would be mm-hmm. these electronic records. Right. Mm-hmm. So she had all of the files for like company logos and things mm-hmm. like that, that cost money to create. Mm-hmm. And so she, she and a friend got on the phone and they called everyone that used to go in there, sporting teams mm-hmm. and companies for sales awards and all this kind of thing. And they called them all and they let them know, we have your records, we have your your data file for your mm-hmm. logo and everything, and this is where we're located. Mm-hmm. And she put that business together, and, and she was a person who never had that entrepreneurial drive or that mm-hmm. entrepreneurial dream. She was really right. just someone looking to replace an income. Mm-hmm. And when she got tired of that job, when you know she did that business for almost 15 years. Holy cow. And, and when she wanted to eventually get out, it, it wasn't to go get another job. It, mm-hmm. She at, Once she got into that entrepreneurial lifestyle, she started to like it. Mm-hmm. She started to like the fact that she controlled her schedule, that mm-hmm. she set the hours. And when it was time to leave, it was she wanted to retire. That's when she went looking for an opportunity to sell. And, and it was a perfect business for my ex-wife, for her mm-hmm. situation and her point in her life. And so I helped her buy that business. And, you know, it, it it was a it was a big eye opener for me because mm-hmm. because I've always just assumed that other people would be like me you know that they have this dream to right. own a business mm-hmm. uh, but to your point Deb it's not always the case but even if it isn't your passion and your dream you're right you can still build something that somebody else would want to pay to own because mm-hmm. it'll give them a head start and so in this example for my ex wife you know she was buying a business that already had. thousands of customers that knew where the shop was and that that come there every year, for example, when, you know, for these sporting tournaments Mm -hmm. and all this kind of thing. And so the, the value in starting off with a head start, not starting from scratch, having that, that cash flow and the client base in place, Mm -hmm. that's worth something to a lot of people because the scariest part of business, of course, as you know, is starting off and finding those initial customers. Mm -hmm. when you described how you've seen people online close their business, I'll bet you more often than not, it's because people tried to start something and they didn't quite get it off the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. And, they didn't and, realize, especially if they'd been in corporate America, you know, mm. they didn't know about oh, little things called overhead, um, you know, and, and, and they didn't really realize all of the nuts and bolts that go into it. And, and it could be that they have the passion for doing whatever that is, but they don't, have a passion for doing the books, for mm-hmm. you know, dealing with bankers, for you know buying office equipment, all those various things that were done, you know, when they worked in corporate America by someone else. Um, yes. so, and, and I think that is probably where a lot of people, as you said, you know, they they have problems with that. 
And it's interesting, I spoke with a, another guest several weeks ago about buying an existing business. And it truly had never entered my mind because when I started my business, it was, you know, I started from scratch. I had this vision. I had this dream, you know, and 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 then to, to stop and think, well, you know, now granted what I do is a little bit different, but it, to have bought a business that already had at least some of those pieces in place, mm-hmm. that would be incredible. Um, you know, and, and you have worked with people. To, to do that. And, and so I, you know, I, I think that's very interesting. It's funny. We skipped your bio. I was just so excited. I just jumped right into this. Um, and, and you are, you, you have been, you know, on, on both sides, you have helped purchase businesses and you have helped sell businesses. Um, you've written six books, which, you know, that's, that, that is, is just a, a great accomplishment. Um, and, you know, uh, so I'm looking here, you know, on the, on the buying side, you have a book about, you know, that is written for someone who's thinking of buying a franchise. Yeah. Because that in a lot of cases, that does seem to be the, you know, the, the, the easy way to do something, you know, you just buy in, they, they do everything, but you know, there's definitely lots of things that business owners need to look out for when they're buying a franchise. And then another one of your books is 21 stupid things people do when trying to buy a business. Um, yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, so I love that, that you have all of this expertise because it is something that, you know, if, if somebody is buying or selling, but 99% of the time, and I'm just making that number up, but I'm guessing it is a high number. We, as that person, don't have experience. You know, we've never bought a business before or we've never sold a business before. So to, you know, you've got so many great tips and, you know, expertise to help people through this process. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, yeah, I've been helping people buy and sell businesses since 2008, and and before, and, and that's when I got into becoming a business broker. Before that, mm-hmm. I was a commercial debt uh, broker, so I helped people obtain financing, and and that kind of led into the business brokerage because what was happening is increasingly I was getting people who were looking for financing to buy businesses, mm-hmm. and I was also seeing what was happening in my local market here, the, some of the problems that were coming up. So mm-hmm. I remember one day I got a phone call from a bank down on Main Street, a commercial mm-hmm. bank, and I knew the banker there, and, and she called me and she said, Dave, she said, I've got this lovely couple here who's just moved from Korea, and uh, they want to buy a convenience store, and they brought me a contract, which is a house-buying contract from a real estate agent. Oh, dear. For the purchase of this store, mm-hmm. and it says that they're going to get ninety-five percent financing within ten days, Ooh. which, which is some, which is something that you would expect to in purchasing a home. Right, because you've gone and you've gotten a mortgage. Yeah, and so the the whole notion of those types of terms for a business are just completely absurd. And mm-hmm. and the problem, of course, is that this real estate agent who's used to selling homes tried to sell a convenience store, right, and thought that they would earn you know, easily earn a commission and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And when the financial crisis came around in 07, 08, 09, um, over half of the companies that were sources of capital for me in my, in my commercial debt brokerage business ended up closing down um, because they were, they were creating loans and then selling the, the paper of those loans onto Wall Street. And if you remember the term asset-backed commercial paper, mm-hmm. that's the stuff that went bad and, mm-hmm. and caused the whole stock market crash and all that kind of thing and the, the collapse of a couple of those banks. And so I ended up realizing that my business was in trouble and I saw this void in business brokerage. Mm-hmm. So 
I joined a national brand, international brand. Um, it's called Sunbelt. They have 300 offices around the world. And the reason I chose them was because it gave me access to training where I could mm-hmm. actually go and learn about the skills and the the information I needed to be a broker of businesses. And and I have a business background. Like I'm, I'm a smart guy. I know a lot about business. I know about finance. That's what I studied in university. Mm-hmm. But I learned so much more in doing my my certification program. It, it took me about two and a half years. I had to make three different trips. Actually, one one trip was down to Atlanta for five days of courses, another trip to Orlando and one to Ottawa. And I was the first person in my area to obtain a, a certification in selling businesses. This is mm-hmm. how underpenetrated this profession is um, in my region. It's mm-hmm. much more developed in the U.S. But... Um, so, so then I started helping people buy and sell businesses. And over the course of the three years that I acted as a traditional broker, I sold uh, 36 companies. Mm-hmm. And that made me one of the most successful brokers in my local area. Mm-hmm. But it, it still wasn't a system that worked well for me or for the clients. And right. I'll, I'll give you a great example. The Because of my training, my education, and my experience, I'm the kind of guy, if I go and get a job somewhere – I expect that I'll earn six figures. Right. In my own business, in order to be able to produce that kind of income for myself as a business broker, it meant that I had to charge commissions of 10 or 12%, which is mm-hmm. pretty standard in that industry. Mm-hmm. And so I would sometimes work two, three years on a file before a business was sold and then have to give that business owner a very large bill for my services. Meanwhile, right. I was working to try to sell other people's businesses, which the businesses weren't as desirable, they weren't as good, and I would work just as hard on them, but they wouldn't end up paying me anything. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that people who developed good businesses ended up subsidizing my efforts in helping people who didn't produce a good Mm -hmm. business to sell. Mm -hmm. And so when I left that industry because of the crazy cash flow and everything, I said, how can I apply this knowledge that I have in a way that makes more sense both for me and for the buyers and the sellers. And so I, I, I changed things into more of a consulting model. And so today and for the last couple of years, what I do is I work with buyers or sellers, but I, I help them do the deals on their own. Mm-hmm. And I and I operate from a menu of consulting services. So for my buyers, I have a three-step process. For my sellers, I have a five-step process. And I simply charge them for the things that I do mm-hmm. where they need the expert help. And then at the end of the deal, there's no commission. Mm-hmm. And so it means that my clients, buyers and sellers, end up paying out a lot less right. than they would normally. And mm-hmm. for me, I don't have the crazy cash flow. Right. You have, have a, a nice, steady stream yeah. of income. <laughs> Exactly. Every every week I'm sending invoices to the people that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm growing a lot fewer gray hairs. Mm-hmm. And, and the people who've been successful at developing a saleable, desirable business, they end up keeping more of that money in their pocket. Right. Well, and, you know, I like that concept because... You know, as you mentioned, it's a way for people to save money, save stress, save, you know, whether whether they are actually the person selling or buying a business or, you know, as you mentioned, the, the person in your position, because, you know, it, it, uh, my only experience has been, you know, in, in buying and selling homes. And ugh, that I hate that. I mean, it's just it's it's horrible and it's awful. And, and you're right. You get these gray hairs from it. 
And I can only imagine what it would be like to sell a business. Um, you know, you mentioned that the, you know that, that you had been contacted by that person who, um, you know, they were you know the the realtor, the the residential mm -hmm. realtor who thought that you know she could sell it. And you know, I'm sure that initially made sense, you know, because she's selling that building, that property, but it was also selling everything inside it. So it would be like trying to sell a house with all of the furniture, you know, everything that's in there, which some people might want, some people might not want, some of them want bits and pieces, but it's also, you know, you're kind of like selling the relationship with the neighbors, um, you know, and, and, but in, you know, in the case of a business, you're selling the relationship with customers, you know, all of those various things. But I, I found it very interesting because you have a, your newest book is called how to sell my own business, a guide to selling your own business privately and not pay a broker's commission. You know, and, and you talk in there about how to use a broker and you know we'll we'll talk in more detail about you mm -hmm. know good, good, bad, and ugly about selecting a broker, but then you know how to, to do it on your own. And one of the things that, that I was just so interested in was that you mentioned that in, in many cases, in order to be a licensed broker, you actually have to be a realtor. And so yeah. that's that weird disconnect, but it's kind of like they don't know what else to do with you. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because when you were describing the analogy of selling a business is like selling a house with all the furniture and the neighbors' relationships, yeah, I think that that's what that real estate agent probably thought. Right. And, I'm selling. And it's so much I'm more complicated. Yeah, because selling a business actually has nothing to do with any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. When people buy a business, they're buying a cash flow. Right. And so, the the analogy that I, I draw is that when when you're talking about a business broker versus a realtor is and here's the other thing too is that business brokerage is often done in secret mm -hmm. because if people find out a business is for sale the business can be damaged right right you can lose employees you can lose customers clients all those various things exactly so so I had to do the job of the appraiser I had to figure out what the business was worth mm -hmm. I then had to do the job of the broker finding the buyer mm -hmm. and then I had to do the job if we're going to continue with the real estate analogy of the mortgage broker because mm -hmm. I usually had to come up with the cash flow forecast and help the buyer create their business plan and then I took it to the banks mm -hmm. that I had a relationship with so so from cradle to grave of the whole deal mm -hmm. both working with the seller and helping them market and sell the business and then working with the buyer on their end to make sure that they can pull their resources together to buy the business. So it it really is a, a you know a very different more complex thing. Now to mm -hmm. your point about brokers needing to have licenses this varies by jurisdiction. So mm -hmm. in different states in the US and different provinces in Canada there are different rules. And a lot of the laws about um, buying and selling stuff date from a while ago. So right. where I live, you know, the legislation covering real estate agents is probably 50 years old. Oh my. Oh yeah. It, it's, and, and it gets updated so every once in a while. technology which is oh, yeah. probably one of the biggest issues. Well, and, and it gets updated, but it's like band-aids, right? It's like, right. now we're going to add this thing that talks about mm -hmm. something new with trust accounts. And now we're going to add something else about, you know, fiduciary duty or whatever. Mm -hmm. They just put band-aids mm -hmm. on things. And so back before, in the good old days, almost every business that, you, if you imagine what a business looked like, it was a retail place or like a hardware store or a corner store or a pharmacy, mm -hmm. and it was in a building that, w w that the business owned, right? And mm -hmm. that was a business. Mm -hmm. And 
So way back when, they, where I live, they lumped business brokers in with realtors. And they said to sell a business, you have to have a real estate license. Now, mm-hmm. the 36 businesses that I sold while I was a broker and I had my real estate license to comply with the law, mm-hmm. only twice did I actually sell any real estate. Ah. Because in today's modern era, if you have a physical business, almost all physical businesses lease right. versus own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are virtual businesses. I sold businesses that were based in people's homes that did business mm-hmm. on the internet and over the telephone. Mm-hmm. And when the business was sold, that went from one person's home to the other person's home, right? Right, Because it was an online virtual business. It didn't need a physical walk-up place. And so the problem arises here is that if you tell people that in order to sell a business, you have to have a real estate license, what that says to some realtors is because I hold this license, I'm qualified. Right. And in the reality is that they're not. Mm-hmm. And so business brokerage is a completely different discipline. And I've, I've seen people try to move to progress from one to the other. It's, have you ever heard of something called the Dunning-Kruger effect? No. So the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is named after the two people that, that, that coined uh, or discovered this, uh, this mm-hmm. idea, Dunning and Kruger. And basically what the Dunning-Kruger effect says is that confidence will actually decline as knowledge is gained. Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, Deb, you know, after the podcast today, why don't we meet together and build a hot air balloon? Mm-hmm. And you say, sure, that's great. It yeah, can't be that fun. hard. Mm-hmm. It can't be that hard. What is it? It's a big bag. We need something to heat up the air and a basket to hang under it, mm-hmm. right? So because you and I don't know anything about hot air balloons, we think that it's simple. Right. We're very and, naive. And we have confidence mm-hmm. because it doesn't look hard. Mm-hmm. So as we start to learn about the different materials for the balloon, we start to learn that you know our, my backyard barbecue isn't going to get hot enough to heat up the air. Mm-hmm. And we learn about the different materials for the basket, and then we learn about how to try to make it safe and how we're going to control it and all the cables and wires. We start to learn all this. We learn what we don't know. Right. And we and scare our, ourselves half to death. Our confidence declines, mm-hmm. right? Until we actually develop real expertise, which could mm-hmm. take us years as right. amateurs, right? Mm-hmm. And then our confidence starts to go back up again. So home selling realtors will think they can sell a business mm-hmm. because they don't know anything about it. Right. They'll think it's like selling a house. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is when I was a business broker, my number one source of referrals came from commercial realtors. Mm. The people who buy and sell commercial buildings, investment properties, and right. do leases. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they were my number one source of referral is because they knew a little bit more about business and right. they knew that they had no idea what they were mm-hmm. doing. Right. They couldn't and, sell that business. They could sell the building, but they couldn't sell yeah, the business. Exactly. And so so I used to get calls all the time from commercial realtors saying, I've been approached by someone. They own a business and a building. They want to sell it. Mm-hmm. I don't have any idea how to sell the business. Um, and, you know, and, and they would want to refer it over to me. And, and, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of the times when I would examine the business and do an analysis, uh, I would show the seller that they could actually benefit and do a deal more quickly and have a larger pool of buyers if they were willing to separate the business from the building. Right. Mm-hmm. And we would end up selling the business to somebody mm-hmm. who would sign a lease and become a tenant. Right. And then I would send the deal back to that same commercial realtor that referred it to me and I would say, here you go. Now you have a building Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. with a, a 10 or 15 year lease in place. Mm-hmm. And of course, then those guys had no problem finding a buyer right, for that. Because that's obviously very attractive to somebody because uh, the buyer is thinking, you know, a look steady stream of guaranteed income. Yeah. And people who go to commercial realtors saying, I want to invest in property, that's what they want. And that's what mm-hmm. those guys sell. My clients are were people that wanted to buy a business. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I would see the same thing happen over and over. Like there was a a fellow who had a lighting design showroom, mm-hmm. so chandeliers and lamps and all this kind of thing, and had been in business for 30 years, mm-hmm. long established business. And he eventually moved his business into a strip mall that he built, and it was mm-hmm. a nine-unit strip mall. Mm-hmm. And when he decided to retire, he listed the whole thing with a real estate agent, and the realtor just put it up for sale and said, oh. nine-unit nine strip mall with mm-hmm. a lighting store. Mm-hmm. And it didn't sell in two years. And, right. and the the reason it didn't sell is because people who may want to buy a lighting showroom don't have the money to buy a strip mall. The or down a payment. desire. They're thinking, I don't want to be a landlord. Right. And the, the people who buy nine-unit strip malls, they have no desire to own a lighting showroom. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, and, and that's, that is one of the examples you talk about in your book is that yeah. it is two separate entities because in many cases, you know, the, the, the business owns the building and there's other things in the building. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and, and, and I love that concept, you know, because it is, it is two separate things. And so it does complicate the process in some ways because you're dealing with two different, you know, entities, mm-hmm. but when packaged correctly, you're right. It makes it so much more valuable and so much more sellable, you know, and, and um, because, yeah, I mean, who wants to become a landlord if that wasn't really what they wanted? You know, they just wanted the ice cream shop or, you know, whatever it was. And so they won't even look at it. I mean, you know, that's the, they, you know, the second they hear that, it's like, oh, no, so I'm, I'm not even going to look. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, people will know what their resources are. And, mm-hmm. and so if you separate the business from the real estate, it means that you've got more potential buyers because mm-hmm. obviously there's more people out there with, you know, $20,000 or 50,000 than there are with, you know, a quarter million. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's, let's talk more. So, you know, we're business owner, Bob. And Bob decides he wants to sell his business. So, you know, let's, let's, the, the kind of, and I'll put this in my little air quotes, traditional way mm-hmm. is to deal with a broker. So what are, you know, what are the things that someone should look for when they're talking to a, a broker about potentially selling their business? They need to get references and they need to find out how long the broker has been in business and how many businesses they've sold. And they need to find out the names of those sellers and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Business brokerage is very, very complex, and and you can, like many things, you can learn from books and courses and certification programs, but it's one of those things where nothing beats experience. Mm-hmm. And when you go through your first couple of years and you see all the problems that can arise, and of course, the worst thing that happens in a business deal is that something comes up on closing day, mm-hmm. and then there is no closing. Right. And... Um, you want to make sure that you're dealing with someone who's been through it several times mm-hmm. so that you won't end up at the end of the process with some of these mm-hmm. surprises. Well, I actually had someone on the phone the other day. They had made a deal to purchase a business and mm-hmm. the deal was structured as an asset purchase, which mm-hmm. is how a lot of small businesses are, are done. Um, but there is never one conversation about what we call the price allocation. Okay. And so if I buy your business for, you know, $100,000, mm-hmm. your business has stuff in it. 
mm-hmm. machinery, inventory, equipment, maybe vehicles, etc. Mm-hmm. And we need for tax purposes to take that hundred grand and actually split it up amongst those different categories. Okay. And how we split it up may or may not create tax liabilities for the seller or opportunities for the buyer. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. If um, if you have a vehicle in the business that is worth twenty thousand dollars, but on the books of the business has been depreciated down to ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars, if we put an allocation of twenty thousand, the buyer is you know he's he's paying what it's worth, mm-hmm. and the buyer then gets to depreciate that higher price down over the next ah. couple of years on his mm-hmm. statements. Mm-hmm. But because the seller already depreciated it down to ten thousand. Mm-hmm. Guess, guess what? Now they have a capital gain. Mm-hmm. So it means that they have to pay back some of the tax savings they got over the prior years by using ah. depreciation. Mm-hmm. So so the seller, of course, doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And what the seller is going to argue for is that they want the allocation to, to have the book value, mm-hmm. that the depreciated value. So that's literally a transfer of tax obligation from one party to the other. Mm-hmm. I have seen deals in the early part of my career where it wasn't properly addressed and, you know, deals almost fell apart. I've seen people Mm -hmm. accept prices and then argue about the allocation and have deals almost fall apart. Mm -hmm. In in the case of the person I was speaking with, the allocation was never discussed. And on closing day... Somebody said, oh, by the way... They said, by the way, we have to fill out this form that your accountant gave me. Like the lawyer mm-hmm. basically said, oh, yeah, we're supposed to fill this in. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's a heated discussion about what numbers we're going to put in which box. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, both parties' numbers have to line up. Right. And you know, and it obviously needed to have been decided upon much further in advance than you know at the closing table. It should have been, yeah. It should have been part of the original negotiation. It shouldn't have been left till the end. And so and so that's just sort of one little snippet of where an experienced broker is going to be someone that, that is going to help you. The, the two biggest mistakes that I see sellers make, number one is putting the wrong price on the business. Mm-hmm. And number two is not having an accurate expectation of what a deal is going to look like. Okay. And, and an experienced broker is going to help a seller with both of those things. Mm-hmm. The, the reason why the wrong price is, is such a big issue is because buyers today are able to educate themselves in ways that they've never been able to before because of the mm-hmm. internet. So if you have a, let's say you have a machine shop business, somebody who wants a machine shop, they will have read everything they can get their hands on about buying a machine shop. They will have right. an idea mm-hmm. of what they sell for. Mm-hmm. both as a percentage of sales and as a multiple of cash flow. Mm-hmm. And if you put your machine shop for sale and you ask double what it's worth, that reasonable buyer who is educated, has a good credit score, has equity in the bank, has cash available, they're going to take one look and they're going to go, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Right. And, I, and the deal I is done. They don't even, yeah. don't even go near it. They don't even touch it. They, they say, I can't talk to them. They're completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. But well, and who, who, who they don't miss, though, is the is the low ballers who just go around offering 30% of asking right. and everything. Mm-hmm. Right? And a lot of times they're the ones that end up getting the deal because it went, you know, for years or, mm-hmm. you know, months, years, whatever. And, and they ended up having to take the, the best offer they could get. 
Yeah. And and usually once a seller has decided to sell a business, mm-hmm. um, it's because they no longer have a passion or interest and they, right. they're, they're anxious to move on to the next mm-hmm. thing. And so the longer they are in that selling mode, mm-hmm. in, in most cases that I've seen, the value of the business starts to decline because they're not putting the energy and drive right. into the right. business. You know, well, and in some cases, they actually closed it, you know, they so they're they're no longer even doing business. It's just sitting there gathering dust. Well, I mean, I, I don't call that selling a business. That's selling. Right. That, that's liquidating assets. Yes. Like, yes. You know, if, if a business isn't operating, mm-hmm. then then it's not a business. It's just mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff. Right. And because that is part of what someone is buying is the, the active business because you're buying those clients, those customers, you know. All precisely. Of yeah. Yeah. Right. The, the, the second biggest problem, uh, as I mentioned, was people not having an accurate idea of what a deal will look like. And I think mm-hmm. um, I may have used the example in my book of the, the, the countryside restaurant. Mm-hmm. And this was another business, again, for sale with a real estate agent. And the realtor called me and asked me where he could take his buyer to get financing. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, you're basically asking me how I do my business. I said, look, why don't you just refer these people to me and I'll pay you a cut. Right. Right. And of course it's the easy thing. Mm -hmm. The the realtor was like, no, it's my deal. I'm getting all the money. And I said, Mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, tell me about the deal. And and he basically, and I had no intention of helping him because you 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 know, or you tell him, Hey, buy the, buy my book, but you were nice and polite, I'm sure. But yeah, you're not going to tell him a hundred percent of what to do and get paid nothing. Well, well, this is what he told me though. He said, this is the third buyer that has come forth that wanted to buy the business. Mm -hmm. None of them can get financing. Mm -hmm. And they keep asking the seller to Mm -hmm. either do a lease to own or finance part of the deal or what have you. Right. Right. And so here's what the seller didn't know and the realtor didn't know. It's impossible to finance a restaurant. Mm -hmm. I've sold over a dozen restaurants. Mm Mm-hmm. And in every case, the seller ends up financing part of the deal from anywhere from 30% all the way as high as like 70% of the wow. deal. Mm-hmm. And I've sold over a dozen restaurants. And in a lot of the cases, there were no banks involved at all. Mm-hmm. The, the buyer put down some money and the seller financed the balance. Mm-hmm. And because the real estate agent and the seller didn't know that, mm-hmm. they didn't know when the perfect deal was actually sitting in front of them. And probably all three of those potential buyers had made perfectly reasonable offers. Right. And what eventually ended up happening with that business is they closed it mm-hmm. and ended right. up trying to sell the building. Mm-hmm. And it was a business that had been open for years and, and mm-hmm. most likely did have a great deal of goodwill associated mm-hmm. with it. Right. And it was all destroyed because people were looking for help in the wrong places. Mm-hmm. Well, great example is a business, you know, just down the street here from us. And it's, it is a restaurant. Mm-hmm. It was, a, a, you know, when we first moved here, <clears throat> excuse me, to Atlanta, it was a sports bar and mm-hmm. sports bars are very popular, you know, and, and so it always had a lot of people, even just for lunch. I mean, you know, this was a very, from the looks of it, successful business. You know, we went in there several times and then bam, it was closed. I mean, you know, and, and it was closed as in when you look through the window, stuff was still sitting on the tables. So it clearly probably something major had happened. Um, you know, and, and this wasn't just that somebody decided, hey, I want to get out of it. And so there was, you know, a realtor sign in front of it for a year at least. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's like you said, you know, people don't want to buy a business that is clearly liquidating as opposed to buying the business. And eventually it did sell, but it sold to a, a company here that has multiple restaurants, um, you know, and, and, but it took years. I mean, you know, it was, it was probably totally empty, but, you know, or, you know, without activity, I should say for several years. And, you know, had they gone about it the right way? It probably, you know, could have done one of these things where one day it was owned by one person and the next day it was owned by somebody else and nobody even knew there'd really been a switch, um, you know, and, and and I think that's what, you know, the, the goal should be, you know, your your customers, your clients, uh, you know, of that business really shouldn't know that there's a change that's happened, um, you know, because it's it the business never stops functioning. Yeah. Um, clearly, you, know, you go in and you make changes, but you know, um, it maybe. I mean, maybe you just take over and you run it exactly the way it's been going. But yeah, they shouldn't really know, a you know that that something new has happened. You know, now clearly, I mean, you know, that's that's the best case scenario. You know, there are certainly businesses that are struggling, and so somebody goes in, and I love the under new management signs that go up. <laughs> But but yeah, it's it should be now. And, you know, we're clearly not saying it's a smooth transition because it's not. It's something that takes a lot of very hard work and, and planning. But that's you know, that's the best case scenario is it just, you know, one day it's owned by one person. The next day it's owned by somebody else and just keeps going merrily along. Well, Deb, I'm glad you brought up the the example of of a, a sports bar, for example, mm-hmm. um, because one and we mentioned franchises before in my my 2015 book franchise warnings ended up mm-hmm. becoming a bestseller in its Amazon category and the reason i wrote the book is because if you go on Amazon there are literally there must be 100 books there on mm-hmm. how to pick the right franchise but i think mine is one of two on wow. telling people what the problems are with the mm-hmm. franchise sales model or franchise mm-hmm. business model and <laughs> you can't tell if a business is good or not Mm-hmm. by how busy it is because don't forget mm-hmm. it's not about the sales it's about the cash flow mm-hmm. and so you can have a very busy restaurant that is mismanaged or has structural problems in its overhead and mm-hmm. it doesn't make money the franchise people will often tout statistics showing the success rate of franchises versus startup businesses mm-hmm. and there are a lot of reasons why those franchises are still opening and I'll just simply give you an example would you agree that uh, with a couple hundred dollars um, and some business cards I could open a business probably right I could open a mm-hmm. window cleaning business for right, example right. with mm-hmm. less than a hundred dollars at the hardware store and mm-hmm. some flyers at Kinko's, right? Sure. I, you know, David's window washing and, mm-hmm. and go through the neighborhood dro- dropping off flyers and get some customers. So there's a mm-hmm. business, right? A very small business. Mm-hmm. I cannot open a franchise with $100, mm-hmm. right? I need to be a person of more substantial means. Mm-hmm. Home equity, retirement accounts, savings, et cetera, that I can qualify for big bank loans because the smallest franchise is still going to be a lot of money, okay? Mm-hmm. So people who buy franchises are people of more significant means, which means that when my window washing business fails after a month to secure enough clients, I might just kill it. And now I'm part of the statistics of how Mm -hmm. startups fail, Mm -hmm. right? But the franchisee who put in half a million dollars and then borrowed another half a million dollars after the first month, if it doesn't work, he's not going to quit. Right. He can't. He's got to keep going and he Mm -hmm. has the resources to finance losses. Mm-hmm. Because he's a wealthier person, 
right? And so what what happens a lot is you'll have these franchise businesses and they look good and they're open and they appear successful and they might be open for five years. But if they're only ever marginal, if they don't quite ever make enough money or if they just kind of break even or lose a little bit, Mm -hmm. the franchisee often has a personal guarantee on the lease for the space, Ah. which which Mm -hmm. means if they pull the plug, guess what? The landlord is going to be able to sue them for the balance of rent owed on the lease. Holy cow. Okay. So if I'm a person who invested a hundreds of thousands of dollars in a business and some months it loses a thousand dollars and some months it makes me a thousand dollars. It's not worth my time to run the business, but the cost of closing it, the liability Mm -hmm. that I open myself up to can be immense. Right. And so when the franchise company tells you that 80% or 90% of our locations are open for five years, the next question out of your mouth should be how many are open for six Right. Because the average mm-hmm. commercial lease period is five years. Oh, okay. So they, you know, they've made it through that, oh my gosh, we absolutely positively have to, or we're going to lose everything point. Right. And to this, the, oh, hey, this is working. No, not that they get to the place. Well, the, my point is that people who aren't quite making it, when their mm-hmm. lease comes to an end, they're just going to close. Done. Right. They're going to mm-hmm. close it. And right. when they no longer have that liability outstanding mm-hmm. to the landlord. Mm-hmm. And so the people who, who then renew the lease and keep going, those are the ones who are actually being successful, mm-hmm. right? right? It makes sense to carry on. And so, um, you know, you, you it, particularly in businesses like restaurants, uh, I've actually got a good friend who is a, a restaurant coach and he just works with restaurants and he works, number one, on cost control mm-hmm. and on making sure the right margins are in place. Because mm-hmm. you can have a very busy place, and if your prices aren't set right, or worse, if you don't understand what your theoretical versus actual margins are, you can sell yourself to death. Mm-hmm. Because every sale can be another another nail in the coffin, so to speak. Right, right. Well, yeah. Let's let's go back to talking about you know we 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 have decided to sell our business, mm-hmm. and and we're you know we do know enough about this that we're not going to use a broker. How does, you know, because, you know, maybe we researched it, you know, all these various things and, and discovered, you know, I, that I could do it on my own. So, you know, we've got uh, just a little under 10 minutes left. How does somebody go about selling a business on their own? Um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, and because it really is something that, you know, as, as we've said, can be done and can be done, you know, for a variety of very positive ways. So, you know, let's let's talk to that business owner who has said, okay, I'm going to sell this business, but I'm going to do it on my own. Yep. What are some of the steps they need to go through? Well, I, I break it down into five steps when I work okay. with people. And, um, and I work with people on any of the steps that they want. But basically, mm-hmm. the number one step is education. So it's learning mm-hmm. about the process. Okay. How does one sell a business? What mm-hmm. is going to happen? Setting expectations and learning from other people. And so when I set up, when I wrote my book and I set up my webpage, the book is part of the education step one mm-hmm. on the website. I've got a link. I've got about 90 YouTube videos right now about mm-hmm. buying and selling businesses. So there's like a whole weekend of watching there and you educate yourself. You learn about the process. Mm-hmm. The second step is getting a, an experienced professional person to do evaluation on the business so that you right. have an, a, a reasonable expectation 
of what it's really going to sell mm -hmm. for. Because and, we always think it's worth more. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and it doesn't matter what we're selling, whether it's our home, whether it's our business, we always think it's worth more. You know, and, always and then a bias. it's this yep. cruel reality when they say not so much. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was actually on the phone the other day with um, with a with a guy in uh, Illinois who was buying a business and the seller believes his business is worth a million dollars. And the buyer has done his own research and he's learned that businesses like that sell for between 1.9 and 2.3 times what we call seller's discretionary cash flow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that would put the business value at about 700000 And so that's a big hit. It's a huge gap, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the seller, what sellers typically do is they think about all the effort they put into building the business. Right. And, right. and one of the biggest mistakes that sellers do is they think about all the time they spent in the beginning of their business when they worked really hard and there wasn't a lot of profit. Mm -hmm. They think that they're going to get paid for that when they sell. Mm -hmm. right. And and the reality is, is that the buyer's not buying your effort. They're buying the mm -hmm. cash flow. They're mm -hmm. buying the business that exists as it is today. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they're paying you for it is because they don't want to go through that startup period. Right. Mm -hmm. And so get the evaluation. That's step number two. Step number three is creating a professional buyer-facing document or what we call a package okay. that shows the buyer what they're getting, what the price is, and why the business justifies that price. Mm -hmm. The huge mistake that many sellers make as well, you know, this is number three, I guess, mm -hmm. is that they will tell people they want to sell their business. They'll find a buyer and then the buyer will have a bunch of questions and then they're not ready to answer the questions. I've, I had this case happen with another client that I'm working with. They approached the seller and the seller agreed to sell the business. And guess what? Now they have to wait three months for the, last, for the 2016 financial statements to be completed. Ah, mm -hmm. Right. And so this, you know, just gives, you know, would, would a car salesman invite you to look at a car and then say, you know what? We're not ready to take offers today. You're going right, to have to wait three right. weeks to come, in, to to come and buy it. Together. Yeah, mm -hmm. no, of course it would never happen. They mm -hmm. they would make sure before they showed you a car that they were ready to make a deal. And mm -hmm. the same thing with a business seller. You have to be ready so that when you have the buyer, you have everything ready to facilitate them because mm -hmm. you don't want things to cool off. If they're excited mm -hmm. about the business and they want the business, you want to facilitate the transaction and have it happen as quickly as you can, right? Mm -hmm. The fourth step is advertising. You can't let people know your business is for sale. So when I say advertising, I'm talking about confidential advertising. Right, and, right. Because as we mentioned, you could lose employees, you could yeah. lose clients, all those various things if they know the business is for sale. Yeah. And so so I help people, my clients with that as well, the ones who don't already have a buyer. And uh, basically what I do is I use all the same business for sale websites that, that list businesses for sale that the business brokers use. Mm -hmm. And I just filter the inquiries and instead of me responding and getting back to people like a broker would, I just filter them and get them to do the non-disclosure agreement and then I just forward mm -hmm. them to the seller. And okay. then mm -hmm. the seller then contacts the buyers. But it right. allows them to find buyers without having to put a for sale sign on the business. Mm -hmm. And then the last stage, step number five, that I do with my clients is the coaching, is the one-on-one -on -one talking them through the process. Mm-hmm helping them to examine an offer, giving my feedback. Mm -hmm. I was on the phone this morning before this interview with a client of mine in Ontario, just north of Toronto. 
and he's in the process of buying an existing um, franchise. Mm-hmm. And um, he calls me every step of the way, and uh, we just have a you know I. He tells me what they said, and I, I mm-hmm. say, you know what, expect this, expect that, and here's mm-hmm. a way that we can look at doing this deal, and this mm-hmm. is what you should propose. And so he just gets to take advantage of my experience as we go through the process. So mm-hmm. all of those different things that I do with sellers, it's there's kind of a menu, and right. people can learn about it at howtosellmyownbusiness.com. That's my business seller's website. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's basically in a nutshell. Right. You know, and... and- Obviously, every business is different and, you know, there's there's all sorts of things because, you know, maybe you do decide to sell your business to, you know, one of your employees or, you know, all these various things. But clearly there are, you know, some of these steps that you absolutely have to take. I mean, you you have to know what someone is is going to buy from you. Um, you know, and it was interesting because as I was thinking about this, I mean, OK, well, if I were to sell my business, you know, there are things like vendor contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned a lot of people, you know, they, they have a lease. Okay. Well, that lease has to be taken over. So what are you paying monthly for that? What are the terms? Um, all of those things, you know, and, and it can be, you know, things as simple as, you know, you've, you've rented some of your office equipment. What's going to happen with that? You know, those buyers of that business need to know all of that. Um, you know, and, and, they do need to know, you know, some of the, the employee information. I mean, you know, clearly it's going to be up to the employees whether they stay or whether they go. But, you know, and I was actually thinking of that as kind of an intangible asset. You know, you've maybe you've got, you know, back to the, the example of a restaurant. You know, a lot of times what you're wanting is that chef. Um, you know, or, or that person, that's who's really making that business successful. So, you know, the buyer might want to know, what are we going to have to do to keep him here or her here? Or, you know, all of those various things. And, and, and you're right. You know, so many times people didn't even think about that. It's like, oh, I can sell my business and here I'm going to do this. And they never really took all those steps. And then they wonder why either it doesn't sell at all or it sells at such, you know, a, a price that, you know, they really are just stuck with because, you know, they have to take the offer and, you know, all these various things. And, um, you know, but the, the thing that really impresses me is this is definitely not a quick decision to make. Um, you know, you really have to have sat down and thought about it. And, and as we mentioned at the very start of the program, it's a lot of it that you should be thinking about every single day that you're doing your business. Um, you know, if, if I were to have to sell my business tomorrow, would it, you know, would I be able to do it? Kind of those type of steps. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about a restaurant and a chef, for example, because some of the biggest fears that buyers have, and I actually have a, I have a workshop about this. It's called build mm-hmm. a business that people will want to buy. And it, and mm-hmm. I teach business owners how to get systems into their mm-hmm. business so that their business becomes more attractive. So, mm-hmm. and whenever you have a key person like the chef, for example, what, you can't guarantee that a person will be there forever because, of course, people aren't property, right? People right, get right. married, they move, they mm-hmm. change careers or what have you. But what you can do to make your business more attractive is you can formalize a system or process that brings you that key person. Mm-hmm. So I once had a, a business for sale that was a wooden molding business. They used to make mm-hmm. crown moldings and door frame moldings and all this kind of thing. And they had this very expensive multi-million dollar piece of equipment that looked like it belonged on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It had mm-hmm. seven or eight screens and all these keyboards. And when buyers would walk into that place, they would go, oh, my goodness, who operates this? Mm-hmm. And 
who gets to play with that toy? Who, who's the person that makes it run? Because this was mm-hmm. the nerve center of the whole business. That machine mm-hmm. is what produced the moldings. Right. And everyone was afraid, what happens if I can't get somebody who can run that machine? And the mm-hmm. seller's answer was very easy. He said, you know what? There's a community college about an hour from here. They have a mm-hmm. program in value-added wood products. And those students learn this machine and some of them come here for co-op term. Ah. And so every year there are eight to 12 new graduates that could all run this machine. Mm-hmm. And just like that, those fears disappeared. Right. right. Because, because now the buyer knows that there is a supply of competent labor that can be had, right? Mm-hmm. If they ever had to replace that person. And so the same thing with a chef, you know, what is the process we employ? First of all, do we have all the recipes properly recorded? Mm-hmm. Do we have all the systems in place for managing the the kitchen? Because sometimes the chef is also sort of the back-end manager, right? Mm-hmm. right? Do we have checklists every day of what needs to be done? Do we have the cleaning checklist so we know what mm-hmm. things have to be cleaned every week? Do we have you know the checklists for the more complex pieces of equipment so that we make sure that we don't forget to remove something that has to be cleaned? We don't want you know crud or bacteria mm-hmm. or something right. to grow mm-hmm. somewhere, right? And so if all of this stuff is formalized and systematized such that it's easy to see that if you hire someone else, they'll be able to come in and make the recipes and do the work mm-hmm. and do the management. That removes the fear people have of that key person because a key person will create a huge discount on a business. I once tried to sell a French bakery, and mm-hmm. the way that you get a French baker is you take a 12-year-old and you put them in a French bakery, and 10 years later, you get a French baker. Right. Right? And it's it's art and science all together in somebody's head. Mm-hmm. And it's not like making cookies. It's not a matter of following the recipe and putting it in for 10 minutes. It's mm-hmm. got to do with moisture and it's got to mm-hmm. do with content of, you know, of, of the, you know, what is in the flour. And it's got, and you know, some of these people mm-hmm. will tell you that they, they know how long to leave it in the proofer by how it smells. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a real artisan trade mm-hmm. and that business never ended up selling. Right. Yeah, ultimately, right. they were terrified. As we say, you know, you can't sell that person. You know, yeah. they, um, you know, and and that might have been a great example of maybe that chef would want to buy the restaurant. But well, David. Oh no, all, he was the seller. He was the oh, seller. He was the seller. Oh, holy cow! <laughs> this has been. This is just absolutely fascinating to me. Um, because as I mentioned, you know, buying and selling businesses was never anything that I even thought about. And so this has been absolutely fascinating, Um, you know, and, and, but sadly we are at the top of the hour. So tell people how they find you online one more time. Sure. Um, The, the easiest place to find me is at my blog site, which is davidcbarnett.com. And from there, there are links to, to all my other sites. And I have a a website that's all about helping people sell businesses. I have another one, businessbuyeradvantage.com, which is about helping people buy businesses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, if you get onto my email list, I put out a new video every week about buying, selling, or investing in small and medium-sized businesses and, and management questions. And I've, I've got followers who send in their questions. And so the content mm-hmm. is always really relevant uh, because I'm really answering people's questions that, uh, that they need answered for the deal that they're working on. Well, David, as I said, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait until we chat again because I think we will. You know, there's there's just a lot of stuff here that's really cool. So for everyone out there, I'm Deb Creer. I've been having a great time talking with David Barnett, and have a great day. 
Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.